This is Truth Encounter, and our studies in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy take us into questions as we contrast God's commands about holy war in the Old Testament with Christ's commands about spiritual warfare in the New. Why the difference in the commands? What can we learn from the Old Testament commands about war in the 14th century BC for our lives in the 21st century? Here is our study leader, Dave Wurtzen, to introduce this week's discussion of God and war. The most mighty person that ever lived on planet Earth looked like a total weakling as he allowed the forces of brutality to snuff at his life. But if you're a father of Jesus today, if you've come to know him, you know that he won the greatest victory that could have ever been won because because he allowed himself to hang on the cross, and we studied about those Roman soldiers just spitting at him and, and slapping him and mocking him. We talked about how our ego would have just sucked him right down and would have destroyed them when they yelled, if you're the king of the Jews, prove it. Come down off the cross and, and predict for us and all that kind of abuse Jesus took. We talked about the question, why did he stay there? Because this battle was not the conquering of a little pharaoh in the Old Testament. This was the battle against the ultimate forces of darkness, the king of the darkness of this world, Satan, the adversary. And Jesus allowed Satan to totally have his way with him, you might say. He allowed all that the terrible rejection of God could mean. And Jesus on the cross of Calvary just let it all be sucked into himself. And that's warfare. Incredible spiritual warfare that none of us could even imagine. Physical pain was only a small part of it. It has to do with this tremendous cosmic struggle between the forces of evil that are built just on power and just on might, and might makes right. And Jesus said, no, the ultimate God of the universe is not just omnipotence. The ultimate God in the universe wants people to be able to choose. The ultimate God of the universe cares about every one of your will. And he's going to make it possible for there to be a way of love that you can choose. And that's a far bigger fight. Some of you are sitting there saying, if there's a God in heaven, why doesn't he just show himself to me? If he does, you're done. Because there will be no choice left for you. You see, the kingdom of heaven is about a choice of love. When I was just a little kid of five years of age, God didn't come to me, put his, put his spiritual arm in my throat and say, Dave, you're five years old, receive me into your heart right now. If you don't, I'm going to snuff your life out. God never did that to me. You see, when I was five, man, boy, God just gave me a blinding light. God did that for Paul. He was a hard nut. God never gave me a blinding light. I was just a little kid of five. I heard someone say, a preacher was saying, God's son loves you, David. And a little voice inside said, I know that. And I heard that, you know, Dave, even though you're five, you, you've disobeyed God. You're a sinner. But God still loves you. He really cares about you. In fact, he cares about you so much that he doesn't want to spank you for your sins. He doesn't want to spank you at all for your sins. In fact, he wants to just totally forgive you for your sins. And as a five-year-old, I thought that was a great deal. This little voice inside said, will you believe? Will you trust? Will you depend upon him? God didn't muscle me into his kingdom as a five-year-old. He invited me to come in. 
He gave me a choice. And I could have turned and walked away. I could, I could still be walking away. That's what this new warfare is about. It's about a choice of love rather, rather than a choice of force. In the Old Testament, there were many choices that there weren't any choices. It was just might and power. But under the new covenant, under the new law, this new way of life with Christ, God in his grace is coming to us. And that's why things are such a mess, because the book of Peter tells us that the Lord is very long-suffering. He doesn't want anyone to miss it. He wants to give you time to willingly choose him, because when his son comes back as a warrior, when he comes back as the Israelite armies fought in the Old Testament, the next times the nations just stand in array against his people, the next time all the nations of the world gather against that little people of Israel, God's going to say, that's the end of the choice. I'm going to come and defend my people. Revelation 19 says Jesus comes with might and power and great conquering. And Antichrist is just snuffed out. Satan is just snuffed out. Every one of them are just gone, just like that. Just by the spoken word of his mouth, which is called the sword out of his mouth. But there's no choices then. The choices are gone. Because the might of God has been revealed. Now we're living in a quiet time, an invisible time, where God comes to you quietly in your heart. The different kind of warfare. And you've got to decide. You also need courage. Because right now we're living where our enemies aren't the physical enemies. It's not so much people that are like Philistines that are trying to get us. It's a, it's a much more cunning thing. It's about evil that is, is in conflict inside of us. And even though we're followers of Christ, we're still pulled in to want to do evil. It's about husbands who have lived faithfully with their wives for many years, but suddenly you can go through a time of great upheaval at work and real fear about your finances, and suddenly you find your heart not guarded very well. And you find forces moving within, and you're tempted to blow your whole family apart. That's a struggle. That's real warfare. Or you're tempted to cheat. Kids are at school and they're in an exam and you got to make it. You're going to flunk that grade if you don't make it in this test and you're going to have to repeat it again. You might even have to repeat a whole year of school and, and all the crunches on, you got to cheat. The person sitting next to you always makes straight A's. That's a war. That's an internal war. And the Lord Jesus comes to us under the new covenant and says, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6, you wrestle against the powers, against the force of this dark world. And then 1 Peter tells us that the warfare within, we war with the passions that are trying to control our life. I think it's really important for us as a group of believers to realize, don't be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to tremble before the forces of darkness. You don't need to be beaten. Because God is with you. That was the, call, that was the calling. That was the, that was the statement made by the priest that made all the difference. I'd like us just to have just a time right where you are right now. I want you to get involved with this text. I want you to realize some of you are afraid. Some of you know some other believers that are afraid. I want us, I'm, before I go on teaching today, I want us all to bow our heads and I want you just to pray privately. I want you to think about some of the struggles that you're having. Some of the fears that you have, some of the things that you think, man, I'm really not having victory. And I want you to look at this passage because the ancient Israelite warrior had victory because they remembered God is with me.
Your son of God has come to you and says, I will be with you even to the end of the world. So I don't know what your struggle is, but God does. You can just quietly bow your head and just talk to the Lord and let those words, don't be afraid, don't panic, don't give up courage. I'm with you. God says, I'm with you. And let's be reminded of that and ask the Lord to give us victory by the presence of Christ in our life. Go ahead. Dear Lord, there's business challenges. There's physical health challenges. There's temptation to do what we know is against your moral law. Lord, some of us have faced a, a challenge that we couldn't even imagine that could ever come into our life. It tempts us to be really angry with you, reject you, and we just ask you, Lord, that you would help us to realize that you are good, but you're also a God that doesn't want to force us. You want us to open ourselves to your love. And I would pray that your voice would quietly speak to every one of us and help us to, to not be afraid, to not tremble, to not panic. Lord, fear is, a, is one of the most powerful emotions that we have to deal with, and it can just suddenly come upon us. And Lord, I just would ask you that you would help us to realize that as we invite the Son of God into our life, that he'll be with us and we don't need to be afraid. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The next thing that happened as the Israelites prepared for warfare is not only the priests got up, but then one of the officers got up. And I would love to be in this army, because you know what the officer said? This is incredible. The officer gets up after the priest gets through, and it says in verse 5, the officer shall say to the army, has anyone built a new house and not dedicated it? How many of you are building a house right now? Anybody building a house right this minute? Lyle? Lyle, you can go home. We don't need you to fight because you haven't. You've got to finish building your house. You've got to dedicate. Anybody else? Oh, the rest are going to have to stay and fight. That's number one. If you were building a house and you hadn't dedicated it yet, they sent you home. That was an exemption. Isn't that incredible? Look at the next exemption the officer gave. I mean, this is an amazing recruiter. He says, number two, let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else may dedicate his house. Number two, has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else may enjoy it. How many of you have just plowed up a garden and you're getting ready, you've planted, you know, planted your onions? How many of you have planted some fruit trees and you haven't eaten the fruits yet? All of you can go home too. See, the idea here is that this is God's good land, and if you're getting ready to go into battle and you haven't enjoyed any of God's good land, like if you haven't get, gotten to enjoy your house, if you haven't gotten to eat some of the fruit of the vineyard, then you don't have to fight. In fact, in old Israel, when you planted a vineyard, for four years you couldn't eat anything from it. For three years you had to let it fa go fallow, just let the fruit drop in the ground that came. The fourth year you had to give all the fruit to the Lord, and the fifth year you got to eat it. So anyone that had planted a, a vineyard within the past five years didn't have to fight in Israel. I don't know how they found anyone to fight, but evidently they did. The third thing, I'm sure we'll catch some of the rest of you, you'll be able to go home. It says here that the next thing has anyone, Chad, has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Well, you, you, it says, let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else may marry her. So Chad and Jenna, you can go home. Lord. Amen. <laughs> and there's a whole bunch of the rest of you. Our whole church family is coming and glue that way. In fact, we would have a hard time mounting an army because a lot of our young people are getting married. In fact, do you realize this? In old Israel, if you got married for a whole year, 
you husbands were not to travel at work. You should tell your employers this. You were not to travel at work. If you were in the army, your officer would send you home. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 24, you know what it says? It says for one solid year, you were to have a good time with your wife and make her happy. And all the men and women said, think that's a good rule? Some of the whiter saying, oh, no, no, no. You say, what in the world? What kind of laws are these? You see, God is saying, God is saying that the land is good. He's also saying that life is good. He said, hey, what does that have to do with us? This ancient law of warfare, you mean they sent all these soldiers home? Yeah, there was one other group they sent home. I just can't believe this. Look who else they sent home. It says, let him go home. It tells a married guy that just got married. Enjoy your wife a year. Then verse 8. Then the author shall add, is anyone afraid or faint-hearted? Can you imagine having an army on the verge of battle? Any of you scared? Anybody faint-hearted? Let him go home, too, so that his brothers will not become disheartened, too. When the authors have finished speaking to the army, they shall appoint commanders over it. I feel like saying, Lord, who was left? Now, there's some very important things. One of the things that will make the Old Testament come alive for you if you realize that it it exposes the heart of God. One of the things in my own life that I learned from this passage, I was raised in a family where everyday life, everyday life was really not that important. In fact, if it wasn't for my mother that's now in heaven, meals and going to school and having parties like birthday parties and getting Christmas gifts and all that kind of stuff would have been totally lost from our family because my dad, bless his heart, really focused on one thing and that is to proclaim the gospel. That was almost all of life, proclaim the gospel. And what it creates in me is the only thing that really counts for God is when you're proclaiming the gospel. It's very deep in my emotions. I can almost feel guilty if I'm just doing everyday normal things. It's okay to take a little break from God's thing just to maintain your health and then get back to what's really important. That's kind of the emotional feel that I had. And that's why this Old Testament text is really important. You know why? Because if a bunch of believers are totally dysfunctional in their everyday life, they're totally consumed with their work, Even missionaries can do this, evangelists can do this, pastors can do this, you can do this. A whole group of believers are totally consumed with their life. They don't make their wives happy. That's what's wrong with most of evangelicalism today. we got a whole army of evangelical warriors that aren't really happy in their homes. You know why? Because they don't feel that God really is part of that. You see, they don't believe that God is part of that. So they don't enjoy their wife, and therefore they go through about 20 years of the ministry, and then they enjoy someone else's wife, and their whole ministry caves in, and the whole plan of God is destroyed in a practical way. The whole testimony of the community of believers is destroyed. Why? Because believers don't think that God wants them to enjoy everyday life. Do you stop and think about what this passage is saying? It says God cares about it when you plow up your garden. See, some of you have this tremendous dichotomy in your life. What we're doing here, you're really doing a godly, pious thing. You're studying the Bible. When you go home this afternoon, you plow up your garden, get away from God. God's real far away from me. No, he isn't. Don't separate your life. God is right there with you. When you plant your garden, gardens are created by God. 
He's the one that created the dirt. He's the beginning of it all. He's the one that brings the fertility. You need to enjoy him. That's what God is saying in this passage. He cares about your vineyards. He cares about your families. Some of you are building a house, and some of you feel really guilty. Oh, no, if I was really spiritual, I wouldn't build a house. I went through that. Bill Brown comes to me several years ago and says, hey, why don't you and Mary build a house? The men want you to really settle down here and spend some time with his church family. Why don't you build a house? There's a whole part of me, and Mary and I are praying, oh, Lord, boy, we're going to really be falling, falling away from grace, building a house. Because that's why I was raised. If you really love Jesus, you don't build a house. You live in a hut. It's an amazing thing that hardly any of the people that told me to build a hut live in a hut. In fact, a whole bunch of my missionary friends that spent all my youth telling me about living in huts, they lived in a hut for a little while. Now they live in great big mansions. I've never been able to figure that all out. Not all of them, but some of them. And it has to do with this dichotomy. If you really love Jesus, you just give away everything. And you're totally impractical. You're a total idiot when it comes to planting vineyards, building houses, total idiot in your family. You're always too busy to just enjoy your wife and your kids. And Deuteronomy comes to it and says, listen, if you're in the Lord's army, if you haven't enjoyed your house yet, go and enjoy your house. Don't you love a God that tells you that? I love that. You know why that's important? Because I began to put things together. If Jesus doesn't want me to make love with my wife, he doesn't want me to have kids, he doesn't want me to enjoy my family, he, he doesn't understand my fears, then what's good news about him? Why should I tell anybody about him? He's the biggest killjoy I've ever met in my life, and he's messing up my entire life. And you laugh, but there's some of you out there, that's the way that you think about Jesus, and that's why it's so hard for me to get across to you anything. Because you don't know who the real Jesus is at all. You're fighting with me just because I'm teaching you from the Bible because you don't hear it. Because you're messed up in your training and you just got a wrong picture of God and it's really hard for me to get through because, man, I, I keep trying to reach you with a real God and you keep fighting me with this, with this smoke screen of what you think is God. The real God of the universe cares about homes and families and vineyards and life. One of the greatest things Midlothian's done for me is guys like Tommy and Al and Ed and all the original guys we started with, they just taught me to relax in life. It's okay to go in a cafe and say hello to people at DTs and drink a cup of coffee and just relax. It's okay. Isn't that great? You're not going to be a good soldier if you're trying to serve a God that doesn't, that doesn't ever want you to have a home, that doesn't ever want you to have families. Even in the New Testament, Paul would say incredible things. He'd talk about the Lord coming back. And you'd expect him to go on from there and say, now you need to go sell everything you have and go out and wait for the Lord to come back. That's not what Paul says. You know what Paul says? He said, would you all work your jobs, raise your kids, be good citizens, because then you'll be a good testimony to everybody and you're going to be able to reach people doing that. What balance. And whether you go to the mission field or whether you stay here, you need to have this balance of life. Life is composed of battles. It's composed of recreation. It's composed of study. It's composed of planting vineyards and fields and houses, raising families, getting married. That's what life is. And the book of Deuteronomy is showing us that the Lord cared so much about this. If they were going to war and, and the soldiers hadn't enjoyed those things, he would say, guys, you don't have any reason to fight here. What are you going to go out and fight for? You haven't enjoyed anything yet. Go home. 
But then God focused in. He says, I don't want anybody to be faint-hearted. And I want you to see the unity of God's army. One of the things that God really cared about, he says, listen, I want people that believe. I didn't say I want people that are perfect. He doesn't say I want people that can do great exploits. God just says, I just want people that will believe in my presence. Those are the people I will use. And there is a real other powerful lesson here. We've got a great God to serve. But some of you are, are fighting it in the standpoint that you have a negative attitude, you're, you gripe about everything, you're down, you get discouraged and feel like, oh man, who cares about this whole ministry? Man, I come up here to clean the church, I had eight people in my crew and only one other person showed up. And this is supposed to be a house of love. Man, fooey in the whole thing. And you walk out. That's where the rubber meets the road. You say, how many times can I clean the men's bathroom? How many times can I use this vacuum cleaner? 250 Awana kids trash out this place. Why don't the leaders do something about these kids? Why don't they take care of these wild Indians? The daycare. Man, we've got kids in here again. They're messing up the rug. Gripe, gripe, gripe. And you know what God said? You know the thing about it? If you gripe like that, you know what God's going to say? God's going to say, I don't really need you to fight. You see, that's so different. Some of you have been raising a thing where, you know, boy, if you don't serve God, man, if you don't serve God, this church is going to cave in, man. We're not going to have enough money. We desperately need you. The cause of world evangelism will cave in. If you don't get involved, baloney it will. You think God's that hard up? God does the most creative things I can ever imagine. God doesn't need me to do one single thing for him. God's never come to me and says, Oh, David, you just really have to help me today. If you don't preach today, man, the whole kingdom of God will crash. That's the biggest ego trip you can imagine. You know what God comes to me and says, David, if you're gripey and negative today, forget it. Do your own thing for a while till you get sick of it and realize that that's not very exciting and it's away from love and it's away from goodness, it's away from everything that you count. You'll come back and let me work through you. And that's where some of you are right now. In the course of 20 years or 15 years or 10 years, you've just started griping. You're faint-hearted. You're negative. You say, Dave, I can't figure out what's wrong with my Christian life. I really used to be really in the battle. Really excited. You know what happened? You became faint-hearted. You stopped getting involved. Little fears kept you from doing something. And then somebody rubbed you the wrong way, so you just started having a negative spirit. And I, it's, I'm just going to tell you the honest truth. God will just... God loves you. You're one of his kids. In fact, he might let you float along for many years, but you're going to be absolutely miserable. Because God doesn't use gripey, negative, criticizing, bitter people. He just doesn't. He doesn't need it. It destroys the power of a group. You say, Dave, what do I need to do? God says, confess it and get out there in the battlefield again. Your Christianity is not going to work until you listen to some kids say their verses Wednesday night. Your Christianity is not going to work until you help in the nursery. Your Christian life's not going to work until you reach out to the kids in the, in, the, in the house next door to you that don't know Jesus, whose parents sleep all on Sunday, and you bring them with you. 
Guys, your Christianity is not going to work until you gather some young men and women and maybe take them out to eat for a breakfast and start studying with them. Your Christianity is just not going to work until there's some concrete things that you know, I'm in this battle. And don't have grandiose ideas, just do some little tiny things. And that's why this text on warfare is so important, because the Lord Jesus is telling his Old Testament saints, number one, I'm with you. Number two, he says... Number two, he says, I don't need the faint-hearted. You can just go home. But if you want to be courageous, and I believe that what Americans want now more than anything else, especially the younger generation, I think Americans want someone to tell them, be courageous, be strong, be brave. And great things will happen.